Welcome to For the Love of Safety, the show for you health and safety professionals out there, where hosts Justin and Jed talk about their experiences in this fun, frustrating, and rewarding field of occupational health and safety. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome to For the Love of Safety. I'm Justin Clavin here with Jed Crawford and our special guest today to talk about a uh, one of my favorite subjects here. We have Nicole Greeson joining us. Hi, Nicole. Hello. How are you guys? We are good. Nicole is a certified industrial hygienist with over 20 years of experience and is currently the Associate Director of the Occupational Environmental Safety and Health Office at Duke University. Over her career, she has been active in the industrial hygiene community, previously serving the American Board of Industrial Hygiene as a member and chair of the Board of Directors. She actively participates in the American Industrial Hygiene Association, sitting on various committees and volunteer groups, and is currently serving on the Board of Directors as the treasurer. I'm excited to have you on, and I'm I'm excited to have this discussion. Today, we're, act, we're gonna talk about one of my favorite subjects, industrial hygiene, and why I kind of consider it the most misunderstood discipline kind of within EHS. Um, and that's coming because, you know, I was, I'm a CIH first, kind of do safety second. And I've seen this throughout my career where there's a little, little bit of misunderstanding here. Like I said, this is, you know, my heart and soul. I love industrial hygiene. I know you love industrial hygiene, or at least pretend really well yes, that you I love do. industrial hygiene. <laughs> I do love industrial hygiene. <laughs> So I thought kind of to kick off the discussion, I could give just a, a brief what I think, or at least how I was taught what the definition was, and you can feel free to correct me, either of you. But to me, you know, industrial hygiene is the art of evalu- evaluation, anticipation, recognition, and control to trying to, of, of chemical and physical hazards and trying to kind of figure out, you know, what's going on in the environment this person is in and how are we going to protect them um, before they even walk in that door um, while they're there and then if there's anything better that we can do. What do you think? Anything more you want to add to that? I agree. I always think anticipate, recognize, evaluate, control. That's what I was trained, <laughs> and that's what still goes through my head when I think about what industrial hygiene is all about. So I uh, just anticipating some of the listeners. <clears throat> Justin, you had mentioned that IH is the art of those things, and there's everyone agrees here. So do we say that it is an art first? Is it a science first? Or is it some kind of mixture in between? And, and why do you think that? That's a good question. Um, for me, I think it's actually, it's actually both, right? It's a, it's a science in that we know exposure. If you just, let's just look at exposures here for a second to kind of get my point here. But, you know, we look at mm-hmm. exposures. Mm-hmm. We know, you know, scientifically, it's going to have some sort of level in there. But the art is trying to figure out what that level is and how we can control that to keep it at a level where it doesn't harm somebody else, right? It's not exact. I agree. I think it's both an art and a science. So I think things we do should be based on science, should be based on the evidence and the data that's available. But sometimes we're dealing with exposures for which there isn't a lot of information And we have to use our professional judgment to figure out what's the most appropriate controls or other measures we can do to protect those who would be exposed to that particular hazard. And that's where the art comes in. And I also think it's, it's hard to, um, to even, even predict things that are going, you know, even when doing chemistry or anything like that, there's always a range, 
right? You just, you can't tell exactly what it's going to be either. Even air movement, we have a general idea of what's going on, but every single thing can affect that molecule in the air, anything. And it's because it's so dynamic, you can never exactly replicate what's going on in the laboratory. You just, you can't do it. Except I guess maybe in a vacuum, but in, in real life, there's just, there's too many variables. Right. None of us live in a vacuum. I agree. So yeah. there's, there's always going to be variability. Um, and I think part of that, the, the kind of art versus science thing is, is one of the reasons that, that some people misunderstand kind of what we do and, you know, what the, how we fit into the, the bigger picture, you know, like Jed, I, I kind of, I went through both um, master courses at, at West Virginia. I went through industrial hygiene first, and then I did safety, you know, and the big joke was nobody in the safety de um, department over there, out, out, the students, not, not the professors, but the students really didn't know what an industrial hygienist was. Um, but all they knew is that they would, um, they would have to hire us to go figure out some of their hazards. So the joke always became, because I was the only industrial hygienist that was in the safety program, I would be working for them. You know, when we got out of school, it was always this this kind of undercurrent of, of of poking fun at us because they just they just didn't know. They didn't they didn't know how we fit in the grand scheme of things. They didn't understand the art behind the science, I guess, is a, is a better way of explaining that. Nicole, have you ever encountered in kind of your career anybody that really didn't understand what we did? Many people who don't understand what we do. <laughs> sure. Everything from so you clean teeth, right? To well, you're basically a janitor, right? <laughs> you do housekeeping <laughs> services, yes. right? Yeah, so I've I've definitely heard uh, lots of misunderstandings of what industrial hygiene is. You clean machines, right? You go into the <laughs> shop and you clean the machines. So for people who do understand what industrial hygiene is, I think everybody would agree it's probably not the best, it's not the most intuitive name for what we do. Number one, because not everybody works in what people would consider a traditional industrial environment. There are a lot of industrial hygienists who are working in areas that don't do manufacturing, so they aren't really considered industrial workplaces. So myself, for example, I work at an academic medical institution, so we have a lot of non-traditional uh, workforce. There's no true manufacturing. We have education and healthcare as our primary industries. So the use of the term industrial doesn't ring well for a lot of our staff or students or visitors because they don't think of our various environments as industrial environments. And I think by most people's definition, they're not. So the term industrial doesn't make a lot of sense to them. So in our case, we use the term occupational, which is pretty commonly used outside of the U.S. to describe what we do, occupational hygiene. And you can argue well, hygiene is confusing as well because there's other jobs where hygiene is used in the job title. And so it is confusing for a lot of people if they've never heard of industrial hygiene. And even for those who have and know what an IH is or a CIH is, they still kind of wonder, well, where did that even come from? <laughs> yeah. And then to compound that, you know, when we, when we, become industrial hygienists, we typically focus on a few fields. Like we don't do everything. We kind of have a, a knowledge of it, but part of our code of ethics includes only doing those, those evaluations that we're competent in. So for instance, like me, it's more noise and air sampling. Um, with you, I can imagine 
there's uh, it's a lot from the like the research and maybe chemical hygiene. Like, wh- what do you focus on? Yes, a lot of chemical hygiene for sure. We do noise as well, indoor air quality mold, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Asbestos, every once in a while, lead and other things like that. Of course, they fall under chemical hygiene. But we actually have a separate radiation safety division. So I do pretty much no ionizing radiation, some non-ionizing mm-hmm. radiation, but essentially no ionizing radiation. Um, we actually have a separate ergonomics group. So I did ergonomics earlier in my career. I actually managed an ergonomics program, but I currently do very little ergonomics because I have colleagues whose entire job is doing ergonomics. And I, I think that that also, like I said, it kind of trips people up because they're like, hey, we need to go get an industrial hygienist. And then, you know, they call somebody who's like, sorry, we don't do that. You need to call this industrial hygienist. So it's, it's I think sometimes it gets a little confusing because the field is, is enormous. You know, when we talked about the definition, we didn't talk about specifically everything that we're controlling, just physical and chemical hazards, because it's just that in all encompassing. I remember I remember going through grad school and being introduced to that concept going, holy crap, there's a lot of stuff in this field. There's a lot of stuff to do. And it's one of the it's one of the things that kind of makes the exam, which we'll get into here in a little bit, I, I think really difficult is because, you know, you have to you have to show your competency in a lot of those fields. And that is a crap ton of information that you have to you have to go through. So, you know, we talked about the science and art. We talked about a little bit of, of kind of the misunderstanding there. I want to talk just briefly about where IH fits into this this model of environment, health, and safety for typical companies. Like where would you know where would we we work with um, with other types of occupational safety professionals? So, and I think that also varies depending on your industry. So, Nicole, you talked a little bit about that. You know, you're you're not in radiation, you're not in um, in, in ergonomics, but but where do you guys fall there um, where you are? So I would say clearly in the age, so we definitely fall under the the health portion. In my case, uh, my group also does safety. So we do both industrial hygiene and safety. So we fall under the H and the S, but we are really fortunate in that we are able to have specializations. We don't have to be generalist EHSs like a lot of my colleagues at other employers have to. And that's in part because we're so large. So my experience is if you're at a larger employer, because the environmental health and safety staff tends to be more robust, there is more specialization. So not necessarily every industrial hygienist will be asked to cover um, all of the H, or in some cases, I know industrial hygienists that have to do all of environmental health and safety because they are the only person at their employer. So they're forced to do, and maybe they like it, but they're forced to practice all across EHS, not just the um, industrial hygiene aspects, which to me are very clearly under the H. Jed, what about you? Where does it fall where you are? Because I think it's pretty similar to where I am. Do you want the fluffy answer or do you want the real answer the fluffy answer is that it is <clears throat> they would broadly categorize it as health without understanding what they're saying so it's exactly what nicole said but they don't have the fundamental uh, understanding i'm trying to build that there the real answer is they have no idea what it means uh, that's a part of why i'm looking to always explaining that discipline and why we're talking about this show because I know that you and I are not the only ones in that situation where much like what was just said, if you have a person who has to do the whole thing, 
or even just a small group of people that have to do the whole thing. I think it even applies there. You need to talk to a number of professionals to sharpen the the argument of why it's necessary to have that discipline. What does that mean in a workplace? Because um, I also want to ask this question as I was listening to you talk. What are maybe some of the criticisms or the whys behind why it's misunderstood in the sense of we just explain how broad it is and yet how we can be so specialized. Is there a problem uh, and take that for what it's worth a problem within the discipline of industrial hygiene where it is so broad that we can't maybe talk in a constructive way to whether they're leaders, whether they're employees or is it too much back and forth with specifics and it kind of gets lost in the sauce you know, why, why is it misunderstood? It's a good question, Jed. <laughs> so I, I think part of the, the problem too, is the, um, it, you know, it, it, the last time I checked, there were probably around seven to 8,000 people who, I mean, I, I think they were CIHs at the time, but that I was looking at it, but let's just say seven to 8,000 people that, you know, consider themselves industrial hygienists, um, and in, in the world, as far as I, I know, Nicole help me with that stat, but I'm pretty sure that's what Pam put up on one of the screens. I think that's, that may have that's been probably CIHs. So there would be a little bit more yeah. than that worldwide. That would be industrial okay. hygienists. Yeah. So let's back off of that. Just erase that one, Jed. We'll have to, I'll have to think a little bit differently how I want to approach it. Okie dokie. But the U.S. and Canada by far are the two countries with the largest number of certified professionals who are doing industrial or occupational hygiene. So that's yeah. the majority of people who are certified. It's not everybody. So then maybe we can answer. Jeez, um, you asked difficult questions, Jed. Um, I, you should sit in some of my leadership team meetings. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I put them on the wall and hang them there. <laughs> I think part of the reason that it it kind of gets lost in the sauce, I think, is how you described it, is because you have folks like me that do more that that are industrial hygienists, certified industrial hygienists, but we end up doing everything. So for me, you know, where I fit in with my hierarchy, I do environmental, I do industrial hygiene, I do safety. Um, and I kind of own that whole department. And they, one of the reasons that where I am now and kind of where I've been before, they did it that way because I have this understanding of all of that so that they don't have to. So they kind of put their trust in me and say, okay, here, you go do it. You know, your terminology, everything that you said, you know, that's, that's fine. We don't really understand that. Just keep us out of jail. That's the kind of, um, in the manufacturing world, that's kind of how I see it. It's, you know, we have you there in place. You know, Justin, as the certified industrial hygienist, certified safety professional, you you just you need to keep us out of trouble. Make sure that um, you know we stay compliant, we keep everybody safe, but they don't necessarily want to understand the nuances in there. And I think that's one of the reasons why it kind of gets lost, is they rely on me to do that. So I would definitely agree with that, and and here's why. Number one, I've seen it in manufacturing environments, um, and even recently. But I also think that's the case because of something Nicole said earlier in the show with this idea of sometimes we are dealing with unknowns. Sometimes 
the exposure isn't necessarily understood to the degree that we want it to be, which is why we employ the things that we do. And in the midst of that, trying to gain the answer, trying to gain the knowledge behind that exposure to appropriate the right controls and to help people grow their knowledge base, there's a time gap there. I think this is where the art comes in, as what you two were saying earlier. And sometimes it's hard to explain art, um, for the lack of a better phrase. But that, I think, is is the beauty of the discipline. It, there's almost this tension in the misunderstanding, but the fact that industrial hygienists are folks that see that through. They, they want to understand and characterize the exposure in such a way that they actually, at some point, know objectively, here is the exposure or here is the problem, and then here are the ways to anticipate, control, identify all these hazards and exposures that we're, that we're dealing with. Um, I actually think it's, I ask the question not because I necessarily think it's bad criticism. It's just a healthy tension that is, I think, a wonderful thing that the discipline provides to overall EHS. I also find it interesting that it kind of depends on the, the field that you're working into. So, Nicole, you and I have talked about this as well, but I think there's a lot of people that understand what you're doing you know, at the university way more than folks understand what I'm doing in the manufacturing environment. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we've we've been very fortunate. I've been very fortunate and my team's been very fortunate that our leadership understands quite well what we do. And that was highlighted even more with the COVID-19 pandemic because obviously healthcare is one of the industries of greatest concern for employee exposure during the pandemic and from an educational standpoint as well, because when you've got students who are living together, eating together, going to classes together, spending lots of time together, there's lots of opportunity for spread of communicable diseases. So they underst- our leadership understands what we do and we've worked in uh, conjunction with our infectious disease doctors and our infection prevention staff. And it's been highlighted week after week after week during the preparation for the pandemic before it actually became a true pandemic. And then subsequent to that, all of the things that we've been working on to make sure that our staff, our patients, our students, and our visitors are as safe as they possibly can be as uh, and make the risk of transmission as low as we can possibly make it. So we've been fortunate that our leadership knew beforehand what we did, but the fact that this sort of brought everything that we do to the forefront and put it center stage, this is probably their most pressing issue for the last 18 months. And they've included us in lots of high-level discussions and asked for our input and used the output that we've produced to, to, I think, make our environment as safe as we possibly can for anybody who's entering it. So again, that that's you know, any visitors, all of our staff, the patients in all of our healthcare locations. And of course, we have COVID patients among those and our students who are trying to just get an education amidst the pandemic. So we, we've been fortunate in that light. The, the one silver lining, I suppose, of the pandemic is that it's really highlighted to those who perhaps 
didn't understand the value of what we did, even if they knew what we did, why it is so important and how much value we are bringing. And this this highlights why, right? We could be in a much worse scenario if we hadn't been able mm-hmm. to provide the input that we did. And that actually is a, a good segue into another part that I wanted to, to discuss too, was, you know, how do we help our peers understand more about what we do? How do we get rid of those little misunderstandings? Um, and, you know, you had given the example like you just did about COVID and they were able to kind of see firsthand the value that you added, you know, but what other ways have you seen that kind of help bridge that gap too? That's not a global pandemic. So that's the one that's taken up most of my time as (laughs) plenty of others. Yeah. Uh, and, and some of them may be not so obvious. So I think about sometimes we have new uh, construction or renovations and we review plans and we provide input into those. And if our guidance is not followed up front, it's often determined later if they have to go back and reconfigure a space to accommodate things that we had commented on earlier on. It's much more expensive after the fact. So if that happens enough times, people really recognize they should listen to us on the front end and go ahead and make that part of the design because it will save a lot of money in the long run. And there's some of it's how an area is configured. Some of it has to do with uh, noise. You think about even HVAC systems can impact noise in a space. It may not be hazardous noise, but it may be annoying for occupants. So they may complain about it enough that something has to be done about it, even if it's not truly a hazard. Indoor air quality is another good example. If things are not done correctly up front, we may end up with indoor air quality problems down the road. Ergonomics is another great example. As I said, I'm I'm not the primary person for ergonomics these days, but it, there are certainly plenty of industrial hygienists who are doing ergonomics. And if that's not considered in the design, it's extreme. It can be extremely expensive in the future to make adjustments in order to accommodate the worker, essentially, that should have been done in the first place. So if you have lots of injuries or illnesses, particularly cumulative trauma, repetitive motion, because ergonomics wasn't considered upfront, and then you have to completely redo something in order to make it so that you don't have those injuries and illnesses, it can be far more expensive than if it had been accommodated in the design up front. Yeah. One of the, for me too, one of the the ways that I've kind of helped get rid of some of that mystery is actually putting a face to what they're talking about too. So for me, it's more of exposure standpoint of, hey, in the past, we've hired this company that's come in, they took all these samples, and then they wrote us a letter and told us what we had to do. With me now, I can do that for them. And I've been able to walk them through what that act, you know, why it's there, how we're going to use it and answer their questions like one-on-one on, you know, a lot of people have concerns over the exposures that, that are there because they see what's in this letter they look at the SDS and they get they get nervous and you know being able to sit down with them and go through what they're actually looking at what the risk factors are what other ways they can protect themselves we even go into their personal life and where more exposures can happen outside of the workplace too that they need to be cautious of and that's helped me quite a bit over the years to kind of prove my worth is by by giving that face to what they're they're normally just paying somebody to come in and do and having that interaction so that they understand a little bit more deeply what what those results have come back as. Yeah, so from what I'm hearing from the both of you, 
is there is this idea of helping peers the way that IHs can help peers or one of the chief ways IHs can help peers is through a direct level of engagement with the knowledge of those exposures whether it's through prevention and design or prevention through designing something into a construction project or whatever it might be like Nicole was saying or whether it is Justin talking about setting down with a person in in either case you are setting down with people and engaging them. It's not just the sample pumps and data and all that. All that's important, all that is needed. But you take that and you engage it to the worker or the leader or the construction manager or whatever it might be. Is just this level of engagement is, is what I'm hearing that uh, IHs can really uh, step up within an organization and help that organization. I agree. I would say that's a great way to influence others. Sure. Yeah. And you know, the more the more we're talking about too, I just I wanted to make sure that we point out, you know, industrial hygiene, like we said in the beginning, is this is this broad subject. In in my profession, I've taken industrial hygiene and and, and safety and kind of blended them together. So to me, there is no dividing line. You know, I, I look at exposures, period, whether they're slip trips, falls, injuries, or whether they're actual chemicals. So I started to kind of think, okay, so when do I put the different hats on? When do I take off my safety hat and put on my IH hat? And the, the kind of the, the line that divides that is when I'm doing something that requires a CIH signature. So for instance, air sampling, I have to take off my safety hat and I have to put on my industrial hygienist hat because I have to come up with a sample plan. I have to come up with the correct media based on the exposures that are there. And I have to take the samples, uh, make sure that they're you know done correctly following the, the NAM. And I, I think then maybe from a, from a safety perspective, if, if somebody comes up to me and says, hey, I'm going to start this brand new process, I'm going to be working with X, Y, and Z inside this hood, the safety professional would kind of look at the hood, make sure that it's all good, make sure that you know the, the process flows, make sure there's a job hazard analysis in place, all of that stuff. They would look at the SDS and go, huh, I wonder if what we have is appropriate and I wonder what their exposures are so that we can pick the proper PPE, take that and hand it over to an industrial hygienist and say, here, go take that sample and go tell me what I need to do. And that kind of handoff happens in my head, I think, <laughs> even though it's it's the same person kind of doing it. So maybe that's, I, I like what you said, Nicole. I think it is, I think it has to do with exposures. I think once you hit the exposure level, that's where you're really getting out of kind of the safety realm and into the occupational health or, you know, industrial hygiene realm. So I do want to talk a little bit about this CIH. I've said it like three or four times, Nicole and I both are them. So a CIH, for those of you who don't know, is a certified industrial hygienist. And what that means is that this individual has passed a third party test and is certified by a board of professionals to practice the art of industrial hygiene. Yeah, and there's minimum experience, years of experience that are required to be able to sit for the exam. And there are some educational requirements as well to sit for the exam. And then there is continuing education requirements in order to maintain your CIH. So it's not like once you pass the test, you're a CIH for life. You have to do so many hours of continuing education or other uh, certification maintenance activities in order to keep your CIH every five years. So according to the American Board of Industrial Hygiene, which is now part of board 
the Board for Global EHS Credentialing, and a certified industrial hygienist is an individual who has met the minimum requirements for education and experience and through examination has demonstrated a minimum level of knowledge and skills in the following rubric subject matter areas, air sampling instrumentation, analytical chemistry, basic science, biohazards, biostatistics and epidemiology, community exposure, engineering controls and ventilation, ergonomics, health risk analysis and hazard communication, IH program management, noise, non-engineering controls, radiation, ionizing and non-ionizing, thermal stressors, toxicology, and finally, work environments and industrial processes. A whole lot. Basically, what all that means is in order to become a certified industrial hygienist, you have to have the education, you have to have the experience, and then you have to have a basic knowledge of all of that. And you sit down and for eight hours, you take this exam. And at the end of it, you know, a little thing pops up on your screen and you get all excited. And now you're a certified industrial hygienist and you can go conquer the world, right? Mm -hmm. Is that how it goes? <laughs> <laughs> of, of course, I'm kind of I'm kind of downplaying that a little bit. It's actually a extremely hard exam. Uh, the last time I checked, the pass rate was still in the 40% range for first time test takers. And according, and also the last time I checked, there was less than 7,000 certified industrial hygienists in the world based that took that exam. I think that there's other OES exams, but just for a CIH, just for the sake of argument, just for that, there's not many of us. There really isn't. We're, we're a very small, close-knit community. And one of the advantages, I think, to, to having that is, is you're, you're almost forced to understand areas that you're not very familiar with or that maybe you're not comfortable with. Preparing for the exam, I think, makes you a better industrial hygienist because you're, you're, you're trying to get all this knowledge that you kind of got partly in school, partly in, in your experience, and you're just kind of pulling all that together into one single place. And, and to me, that's, that's kind of the advantage of, of having a CIH is that you've been able, you spent time pulling all that in, all that information together. Now, to Jed's point, that does not necessarily mean that in order to be competent in those areas, you have to have a CIH. Yeah. So I think what I would like to hear, and, and hopefully some of our listeners would like to hear, especially from your two's, you know, your, both of yours perspective and experiences, two sides of the same coin here, because we all know that there are doctors who can pass their MDs and still practice terrible medicine. And same thing here. So what does it look like when, or experiences maybe, and then maybe some of the lessons learned and, and helpful tips, the folks who claim they can do IH or even want to try to school you as a, as a CIH or a competent person and clearly don't know what they're talking about, or the folks who haven't gone that CIH pathway and have practiced on point industrial hygiene that have led to the, the benefit of worker health. What's some of the things you've all experienced? So if you want me to go first, uh, I've experienced both. So I know quite a few people who have never gotten their CIH, but whom I think practice excellent industrial hygiene. And there may be a number of reasons why they've never gotten their CIH. Perhaps they don't meet the educational requirements. Perhaps they are not very good test takers and are too scared to sit for it, or they don't have the time to study for the exam. There could be a number of reasons why they have never gotten the CIH. And it may be they've never attempted, they've never actually sat for the exam. I know other people who've sat for it, qualified, sat for the exam, failed it, and didn't retake it. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're not 
a very good industrial hygienist. It could just be they're not a great test taker. or Maybe they didn't properly prepare for the exam given the breadth of areas, like Justin was saying, are covered under the rubrics. And I know probably no CIHs who actually are experts in all of those areas. So it is hard to, to know enough about all of it, right? You really, I think you really do have to study. You do have to prepare because in practice, every CIH I know doesn't do every single rubric area on a routine basis. There are probably exceptions out there, but none that I've ever met. On the flip side, there are people whom I have encountered who are not CIHs, who are industrial hygienists, who are not so good at what they are practicing and perhaps are not CIHs because they wouldn't actually qualify to become a CIH. And I think the those are encountered based on experience. So I have personal interactions with these individuals and could say that I didn't agree with their methods. I didn't agree with their conclusions. I didn't think that they really were practicing good industrial hygiene. And of course, it's funny when they try to tell CIHs how CIH should do things when they're not in fact a CIH and are not practicing particularly good industrial hygiene. But I think the the advantage for a CIH is that for people who don't have direct experience with you, but they know that you're a CIH, they can feel some level of comfort knowing that you had to go through a certain level to get that. You, you have exhibited a minimum level of competency in order to achieve that. And the barrier that those who are not CIHs have to overcome is to show people that they are at that level, even though they have not achieved the CIH. And another great reason, maybe they don't have the number of years of experience yet. So they may be excellent, but they just are not far enough along in their career to be eligible to sit for the CIH. So those people, I think, have those who are not yet CIHs have more of a barrier to overcome. But the way I think you prove how good you are is for people to actually experience the work that you're doing and can say, yes, this person really is doing excellent industrial hygiene. And then they'll, you know, their credibility will be there, but it's hard to show that if you have no experience with that person or their work. And I agree with everything Nicole said. I, I've kind of been through, through both sides of it. Uh, the one thing that I, I will add though, is what I've noticed in my career too, is it doesn't matter how good that person is. If their work's not checked by a CIH or signed off by, by somebody else that, you know, has that, it, from a legal standpoint, it, it kind of, it really puts them at a disadvantage because if anything happens or if anything goes wrong, you know, and, and somebody who is board certified has not looked at what they're doing, that could be a potential issue. And I think that's, that's really the only spot where, where somebody who, who does really, really good industrial hygiene will always be at a disadvantage if they're not a CIH. It's, they just, they don't have that legal clout, that stamp that they can put on on what they're doing. And that's, it's kind of the, just the way our, our society is. The, the one disadvantage that I see is that they can't stamp and sign off on exposure plans and sample plans and all that other stuff. And when it comes to exposure, now you're into the, um, the OSHA kind of legal realm. And if you're not a certified industrial hygienist, it kind of puts you as a disadvantage because you, you don't have that stamp, that seal to prove to OSHA that what you did was correct, even if it is correct. 
So two things that I think would be helpful for for the folks out there. One, would you all recommend, this is almost um, a rhetorical question based off of the things you just said, but would you recommend always trying to find that CIH, reaching out to CIHs, going and talking to these folks, sharing your work? If you're not, if you, if you're somebody who wants to practice industrial hygiene, would you recommend going and finding them? Share your work. Don't be afraid. You know, don't be bashful. Go engage those people. Uh, And then secondly, for the times that you do have those conversations where the the math doesn't add up, the numbers don't align, the entire sampling plan and construction just you know is not good. Uh, how how do you best handle those situations to kind of course correct and get them to where you think you you're where you know they need to be? So I can answer part of this first because uh, and Nicole, I don't I don't know if he did that on purpose or not. But there is definitely a way that you can find some industrial hygienists to talk to and get to know. And it's actually how Nicole and I met, <laughs> which is the, through the mentoring. Well, it wasn't mentoring at the time. It was a, it was a project at that time. But through the mentoring and uh, committee through the American Industrial Hygiene Association. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you ask about that with the CIH. So if you want to become a CIH, you need to either have a letter of recommendation from an existing CIH or there's an alternative path where you can essentially show a work portfolio to, to prove that you are actually doing good industrial hygiene. So the answer to your first question is yes, you should, in fact, seek out a CIH if you'd like to become a CIH. And as Justin pointed out, AIHA has a mentoring and professional development committee that essentially oversees the mentoring program that AIHA runs. So there are opportunities if you really don't know a CIH, but you want to, to be matched up with a a CIH who can serve as a mentor. And there are plenty of willing CIH mentors. I can I can say that with certainty. Yeah, you were talking to two ex, well, not really ex, but two, two people who who donated their time to mentor other people coming up. We love to help. Yes, and I, and I still mentor other people. I have a mentee right now. So I've had different mentees over the years. I think it's very rewarding and fulfilling. And, and I do know there are a number of CIHs who are willing to mentor, but who do not necessarily have a mentee currently. So yes, I, I would wholeheartedly encourage somebody who wants to become a CIH to seek out a CIH who could mentor them. How do you as a professional and as someone who cares, how do you course correct? How do you help that situation? How do you help that person? How do you help ultimately the workers involved? Because that's what we're after. Ooh. So honestly, it's going to depend on what ha- what happened. For me, whenever that's happened in my career, it always begins, I guess, I guess that, that's kind of where we should start. It always begins with an initial conversation of talking to the person and trying to get a sense of why they were doing what they were doing. You know, maybe there's something that we didn't see. Maybe there's some variable that wasn't in their notes that we didn't understand. It's not accusatory. It's more fact-driven. Hey, talk to me a little bit about the sample evolution and, and how you did it and kind of, you know, where your train of thought was. Depending on how they answer that question will depend on the reaction <laughs> that comes after that, right? If they get very defensive and very confrontational about it, I tend to stand my ground and be very matter of fact of, you know, this is not how it is. And if it if it escalates and build, unfortunately, sometimes you have to pull out the CIH card of, you know, yep, you can argue with me all you want, 
I'm a certified industrial hygienist. This is what's going to go on. I've only done that one time in my in my entire career. I've only had to do that once. Typically, how it goes after that is just a conversation of, you know, did you think of doing it this way? Because these are the possible possible vari variables that you missed in the sample that was there, it, and it's typically received pretty positively. And then we just have a conversation and we talk. It usually results in resampling. Um, and air, air sampling is really the only place that I've I've had had this issue come up. So that's why I'm kind of focusing on that. But you know, they, they resample, and when they resample, usually I offer to come in and talk with them, work with them, so that they you know you have that one-on-one -on -one interaction. Because like you said, I'm not trying to tear anybody down, trying to build them up, trying to keep their confidence, but at the same time, teach them the right thing to do, and also make sure that we get that data back correctly so that we can protect the workforce. Nicole, what about you? Yeah, so for course correction, I think it not only depends on what happened, but also what is your relationship to that person. So I don't disagree with anything that Justin said, but I think about as a supervisor, I would do all the things Justin was talking about, or at least I hope <laughs> I would do all of those things. So trying to figure out why they did what they did, if they made a mistake, that they understand what their mistake was so that they don't make the same mistake again. If they truly had a difference of opinion, that you can discuss it rationally, you know, why there would be a difference of opinion. If it's a, Sometimes it's okay to have a difference of opinion and a different way of doing things. And I think diversity is important and that includes diversity of thought. So I don't expect everybody who works for me to think the same way that I do. There's advantages in having people who are very different from me work for me so that they can provide a difference of opinion. But sometimes there is a right and a wrong. And so if that's the case. It's I feel like it's my job to point out if they're not doing something the way that it really needs to be done. But it could be that they came up with a different sampling plan and their sampling plan is just as valid as one I would do. And so then we would talk through what they were doing, why they did it. And if we then come to agreement on how we maybe would each do it differently in the future or not. But if that person wasn't somebody who I had any oversight over, and I'm thinking in particular about a contractor. So if we hired a consultant to do something and I didn't agree with their results, I don't have any oversight per se over that consultant and they have a right to have a different, you know, do things a different way because they're probably, if they're not a CIH, probably working under another CIH who is reviewing their work and signing off on it. And so I think the best way there maybe again, to discuss, to figure out, well, I would like to understand how you did this because this is not how I've done it. And this is not what I, what I've come up with in the same circumstance. So to try and talk through and figure out if there's common ground there, that makes sense. If you truly believe that the, the work was not done the way it should have been, perhaps it wasn't done according to the scope. And so there might be some recourse there, but if it was, and they just chose to do it completely differently, and it doesn't align with your understanding or values or whatever the case may be, then I would say it may be that you don't use that particular mm -hmm. consultant anymore yeah. and you use a different consultant instead. And that's all that's all really good insight. So let's let's talk a little bit about the future of industrial hygiene um, and and where we see that going. And Nicole, you have a you have some insider knowledge a little bit here with, with what the discipline is doing. Um, but from my standpoint, I see us 
really moving into the the occupational health. That's that's where I see us kind of going. I I do think occupational health makes a lot of sense. I mean, that is I, I agree. That's essentially the future of IH. I. I'm not sure the term industrial hygiene or IH will ever go away in part because the CIH is codified in a lot of states for certain things. So you need to be a CIH to do X or Y or Z. So I don't think that CIH will go away. And because of that, I don't think IH will ever completely go away. But because of the misunderstanding of industrial hygiene that we've already talked about, And if you look globally, we are essentially the only country in the world who uses that term still. Almost everywhere else, it's either occupational hygiene or occupational health. And in some cases, it's even covered under occupational medicine, sort of depending on how that's practiced in different countries. Sometimes it's it's sort of shoved under that same discipline. So I think the term occupational instead of industrial resonates much more, particularly globally, again, because not everybody has traditional manufacturing, which is what most people, I think, associate industry with. If you ask them, what do you think industry means? So occupational in general, I think is a a term that is more readily understood and more broadly used internationally. And then hygiene also can be misunderstood. So I think occupational health more generally is understood by the public. And I think it's understood more generally around the world. I, my head's in the same place too. I, I really see the the health coming out, becoming more of a focus focus area or or just emphasis put on, on the industrial hygiene side of things. And I honestly, if, if you look at what we do and you look at the point of what we're doing, how we're trying to pr- protect, we are trying to protect total worker health, everything. We're trying to keep this person safe and and keep them healthy and keep them healthy both at work and at home. So I, I really think that it's it's natural for us to move more towards that and be encompassed, be looked at more of a you know, look look at it more holistically, more holistically. Yeah. And AIHA's done rebranding recently, as you're probably aware of, and the used to be AIHA protecting worker health. Not that we don't still do that, but AIHA, the new tagline is healthier workplaces, a healthier world. And I think that gets more to really the the community aspect. If you think about what we're what we want to do, just like you said, Justin, we're not just trying to protect the person in their work environment. We're really trying to consider more holistically what are their total exposures and how can we best keep them healthy and safe. Yeah, and as industrial hygienists, when we go and look at exposures, we have to we have to consider what's outside of there, especially if you something like noise. I mean, just because they they leave that environment, if they don't go somewhere where the the noise isn't quiet, you know, their exposure continues. So for instance, you get off work, you go home, and then you go to the club. Not exactly. We all know you do it, Justin. Go ahead and tell everybody. Rest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You're not exactly letting your ears rest, right? You're not letting your body heal from that exposure at work. 
And we would be doing them a disservice if we didn't understand that. And most standard threshold shift investigation, STS investigations, you go down that route. Hey, talk to me about what you're doing at home. You know, do you have any hobbies that maybe could contribute to your exposure, like hunting or boating or clubbing? As Jed put out. So, you know, you you have to look at it that way. And when you do, when you look at it that way, I, I, I like what you said there, Nicole, you know, it, it industrial doesn't really describe what what we're doing the hygiene part doesn't really describe what we're doing and i think it's just a natural evolution to come up with a word that more holistically shows what we do as a profession to your point we we're, we're never going to get rid of industrial hygiene and that's not i don't think we're advocating for that at all i just think we need to do a better job of describing what we're doing so that we don't have some of these misunderstandings that are there and that everybody can kind of be on the same page so we can help the company the workers all of them. I agree. I think that's been a great discussion around industrial hygiene, around how it's misunderstood, talking about the art versus the science, the the different ways that we're involved within the organization, uh, kind of the differences and the advantages, disadvantages between being a CIH and not being a CIH, um, how to deal with misunderstandings within our peers and even with, you know, that the contractors that we bring on and then talking a little bit about uh, the future of industrial hygiene. I think that, that we've covered it all here in, in this episode. And we want to thank all of you guys for listening. Thank Nicole so much for agreeing to give up her time to come talk to us two and clown around. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This was a lot no of fun. No problem at all. And if there's any questions or comments, by all means, please reach out to us. Uh, send us an email. It's the number four loveofsafety at gmail.com. We do have a webpage now, which is forthelovofsafety.com, F-O-R, thelovofsafety.com. We have a LinkedIn page that's up now too. You can check all this stuff out. And uh, please continue to listen to us and we thank you. And there you have it, folks. Thanks for tuning in to For the Love of Safety. You may always reach out to either Justin or Jed by email at forthelovofsafety at gmail.com. That's the number four, the love of safety at gmail.com. Health and safety is fun. It's frustrating, but it is so rewarding. We'll see you again soon here at For the Love of Safety.